Is anger simply about loss? Is anger simply about not getting our way? Is, simply, is anger simply about being offended? Uh, or is there something more to that emotion, that God-given emotion that we all feel and, and, and we all fear? Uh, when we talk about anger, is it simply us not getting our way? Or is there something going on beneath the surface? Because if we're honest, I think we all battle an inner hulk that we don't want to let get out. And if we're honest, sometimes we exist for weeks on end with what feels like a low-grade boil, does it not? So the minute someone waits a millisecond too long at a red light because it's turned green, we're like on the horn. Or the minute our kids do something that just feels like, well, I wouldn't have made that choice, but it wasn't necessarily a bad choice. But we just have this sort of explosive reaction. What is it with this anger that we tend to carry around? I had a friend call, and I guess the best part about this was that he was calling to confess because there was something in his brain that said this was unhealthy. And I won't give you too much of the details, but his NFL team lost again. And his NFL team had been chronic losers. But he hadn't even watched the game, but he saw the highlights and the score. And he went out to the backyard, and he saw one of his kids' bikes. And there happened to be a, an axe and an aluminum bat, and he just went off on this with no rational thought in mind. He destroyed the bike, he bloodied his knuckles because he was upset. I would contend that's a candidate for counseling and I'm still willing to claim him as my friend, but is anger simply us not getting our way? And in these moments, it comes out like the Hulk, like, oh my gosh, we're just always angry. That's the secret. We're always angry. Um, or is it something going on beneath the surface? Is there something that remains unresolved? Is there's a wound less healed? Is there something that we're just not facing up to and letting God orchestrate maybe a new work? The other side of that is, do we start to envision God like we do Hulk, the God who's always angry, and in just rare moments, he likes us. In rare moments, because of Jesus only, he'll accept us. Or is there a deeper version of God's love, and he doesn't look anything like the Incredible Hulk? And we need to heal our theology, our belief about who God is, how God views us. And so this is what I want to talk about as we emerge into this, this series called God Who. Now, the way you and I experience um, anger, I think, is a direct result of when sin entered the world and its effect of the fall. So sin enters the world and then it becomes a whole different ballgame. But that's not exactly how God experiences anger. See, when we show anger, it's usually because we didn't get our way or because we're offended or because, and I'm not saying it's all wrong, but something is working against us. But with God, God's anger always manifests in the face of injustice, in the face of the vulnerable, hearing the cries, seeing the misery, seeing the exploitation, God then gets angry. But it's not because somehow God didn't get our way or because as his children, we're not making choices that he would. That's never how God expresses his anger. 
Now, let me make an observation for you because I think we can all follow, regardless of how emotional you feel tonight or how dry you feel tonight, I believe God has created all of us with this range of emotion. And if I was to just call it a spectrum or a range, I want to just block it in half because we have in our human fallen construct broken it up into a positive side and a negative side of emotion. And so what we end up doing is we go, there are these good emotions that I like for other people to see in me. There's these other emotions that I like to avoid feeling. We are awful grievers. We are terrible at mourning loss. So we like to stuff it or we like to rage and get it over with. But I would contend that we like to feel or exhibit things like happiness and joy. We like to feel like comfort. We like to feel confidence. We like to feel all of these quote-unquote positive things. And we like to avoid things like anger and, and grief and sorrow and sadness. Because we don't like how we feel, let alone how we act when we feel those. Let me suggest to you this. Since we all bear the image of God, we're created in God's image Doesn't it make sense that if God gave us all of the emotions and he doesn't put a qualitative assignment on it saying good or bad, doesn't it make sense that God would also see that there's a healthy expression for the entire range of emotion? I want to talk about a God who's actually slow to anger and is not like the Hulk already and always angry with us. I think we carry around a sort of shame. We carry around a sort of, um, uh, like a trigger. It's like if you grew up in a home of an adult alcoholic, there's a group called Al-Anon because you grew up used to walking into a home that felt like a minefield. You didn't know if dad was gonna be really affectionate or really violent. You didn't know if someone was going to be uh, emotionally present or emotionally distant. And so you walk and you, you, you kind of have this, this almost like a PTSD condition because you're so worried about what you're walking into. And I think we ascribe a lot of that to how God thinks of us. And so what I'm suggesting is with this whole range of emotion, God expresses anger in a very healthy way. And because we bear his image, I think all of the emotions are also supposed to have a healthy expression in us. So maybe part of tonight is not just healing a view or a theology of God, but healing our own belief about ourselves and what we do with the things that God has equipped us to. Because can I just be honest, as Christians, um, and and God doesn't have um, a political party, but there are things that we're supposed to, called by God, to feel outrage over. And God doesn't have political affiliations because there's one party that would say, I believe in the sanctity of life. And if you're against uh, abortion, then then you're just of the devil. And and while I believe in the sanctity of life and I I don't believe in in using abortion for birth control, I I also believe that there's other people on the side that is valuing the sanctity of life and the dignity of life in other ways. God doesn't have a party. But God has a way to express God's anger. And we need to figure out the most helpful and constructive ways. And we're going to see a little bit about how God expresses that. So there's this verse that we've been going through because it's the only verse in all of the Bible that God self-describes. It's God's self-revelation about 
God's character and God's nature. Uh, and so if we believe we're, we're created in this image of God, we also have to understand we have this healthy expression for all of these things. So um, in, in first, in Genesis 4.26, and just let me review where we've been, there is, before there was denominations and subgroups and all of these kind of affiliation groups, the people of God, Genesis 4, were known as those who call upon the name of the Lord. Well, you know what? I don't want to be known as a Baptist or a Methodist. I don't want to be known as a charismatic or, or pre-dispensationalist. Uh, what I want to be known as someone who seeks after and knows the heart of God. Don't add any brand to it. Don't need any kind of logo associated with it. But to call on the name of God, we need to know who God is. That is God's character and his nature. Because if you're calling on a God who you think is supposed to make you comfortable, I would simply suggest God said, I will comfort you. But I didn't promise you to be comfortable. But we cry out to God thinking, we can't handle this. And God's going, well, I said I'd be with you, which implies that it's going to be hard. I will comfort you in the middle of your sorrow, in the middle of your loss, in the middle of your pain. I am with you. And so the other thing we learn is that God is this, this it says, Lord, Lord, uh, which this is the Exodus 34 verse. And it says he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And so the basis for God's intervention into our life, but certainly into Israel, is because God hears the cry. God sees the misery and God chooses and this is what we learned about compassionate and gracious is that compassion means to suffer with so in other words God chooses to walk in solidarity with us which is also an invitation to bear the image of God so while we all suffer or we all struggle while we all stumble we're also invited as a part of God's salvation to stand in solidarity with others who do as well. That, I hope, helps shape and give your life both purpose and meaning, but also gives you staying power in the middle of your struggle. So God invites us to stand in solidarity. And so here's what I would simply suggest is that if our faith paradigm, if the path that we're choosing is the path of least resistance, and, and not willing to somehow stand with those who struggle, then I have to evaluate, I'm actually living outside of God's story. If I retreat to my prosperous bubble, where I can put food on my table, and none of my neighbors make me feel uncomfortable for my level of prosperity, there's something wrong with that picture. Because God has sustained my life. It's not a perfect life, and it doesn't make me without need. But it allows me to sort of be unaffected by the rest of the world unless I go and step into God's story and realize that like God, I need to begin to identify with the needs among us. And this city that we call our home has neighbors, not living next door to us, but neighbors who cannot put food on their table and cannot put a roof over their head and cannot seem to get along with their own biological family. And we, the body of Christ, get to work out our salvation in solidarity with the needs 
among us. This is what it means to step further into God's story. So um, he talks about, and we've been going kind of uh, just kind of phrase by phrase through this. And today I want to talk about this idea of being slow to anger. Now, let me add to this the second part of this verse that we're going to get to a little bit more detail. But in the Exodus passage, there's also another thing about God himself that's not usually included in later verses in the Bible. But it makes it seem like God's anger is somehow a vendetta. Because when we read this verse, and it occurs nine times in the Old Testament... The second half of this verse reads, go to the next slide, and it says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. Somehow we get this view that God is generationally angry at us and we're held in contempt for maybe what our grandparents did or we're liable for what our children do to which I would say neither is true and this is where it becomes really important to be able to study God's scripture in light of its context and when we start to see this verse come up again in later parts it's actually the second half is left off and here's why just Ezekiel um, chapter 18 um, the reason for not including this, at least according to some of the rabbinic literature, is because of the words of Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18 says that children who are innocent are not pub, um, punished for the sins of their father. The rabbis interpret this verse about God's punishment of the children as only applicable so long as the children don't carry on the family sin. So, even though you grow up in a meth lab doesn't mean you have to grow up and become a meth dealer. You can grow up to be a high school chemistry teacher. <laughs> if you're, that's a reference to Breaking Bad. And you don't have to go to the dark side. But what I'm saying is, in, in ancient thought, people thought collectively. They thought communally. They thought in terms of their extended family and their tribe. So if the sins of the father, was, was, it would also impact the entire family. What it was saying is, is, is a lot of times the sin that was inherited. So if you grow up on a plantation and beating slaves and owning slaves was the norm, and you're going to grow up with a high degree probability of severe racism, if not the thought of you're better than them. And so what it's saying is, no, this was never intended to be God's will. And just because you grew up in this home, you have to grow up and take personal responsibility for the kind of home. But it's not just because your father or grandfather did this, are you then liable. Does that make sense? So God's releasing us. And so the rabbinic leaders and literature starts to reflect that. So it reflects on the compassionate nature of God, slow to anger, uh, abounding in love, and so forth. Now, Maybe the best example that I could come up with, and there's many of them, but there's this story, and I don't know how many of you have read uh, Amos. Amos is one of the minor prophets. Amos has this story that goes about nine chapters long, but Amos lived in the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel had been divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And, and here's this everyday and ordinary guy. He was a shepherd and a fig farmer. And God speaks to Amos about what's happening in the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom had Jeroboam as their leader. And he had had some moderate to success overcoming and there was prosperity. But guess what their prosperity did? It caused them to lose their hunger 
for more of God. And what they did is started incorporating, as they conquered other nations, they were also being influenced by that other culture. So they take on, oh, well, your fertility God seems a little more interesting than our God, or your God of the weather seems really compelling, or your God of war seems kind of beneficial, like a lucky rabbit's foot. I think we'll incorporate some of these other religions. So from the southern kingdom, Amos takes off and he starts calling them out because what they've done is they've cooled their love for the one God and become just like all of these other cultures. But it was their prosperity that caused them to become so lazy and complacent towards pursuing God. And so Amos shows up and he's like, are you kidding me? And maybe the thing that struck, stuck out most was that it twisted their moral view and it was causing such an injustice. And so the people of Israel started to cheat and they started to steal. But maybe the worst thing they started to do is they started to sell their own people into slavery. Are you kidding me? A people who were once slaves in Egypt for 400 years, where God throughout much of the Old Testament is saying, don't forget your story. Don't forget that you once were slaves in Egypt. Don't forget that you were broke. Don't forget that you were oppressed. Don't forget that you were hungry. Don't forget that you, didn't, you once didn't have all this. They'd forgotten their story and become like their captors. So Amos just marches up to the northern kingdom and he starts calling them out. But God gives them several visions but one of the vision there's three of them but the one that I thought was most curious was a vision of a ripe basket of fruit I I I haven't had that in my quiet time I didn't have some picture of ripe fruit but it was actually a picture of over ripened fruit and what he's saying is Israel is ripe for punishment and the bodies are scattered everywhere. Let's read this passage together. And then the sovereign Lord showed me another vision. This is Amos chapter eight. In it, I saw a basket filled with ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked. I replied, a basket full of ripe fruit. And the Lord said, like this fruit, Israel is ripe for punishment. I will not delay in their punishment again. In that day, the singing in the temple will turn to wailing. Dead bodies will be scattered everywhere. They will be carried out of the city in silence. Ah, the sovereign Lord have spoken. In other words, he's talking to really religious people. He's not talking to people who, who, who are simply pagans or don't believe in God. He's talking to extremely religious people who are now taking advantage of the poor to make themselves more prosperous. And so this is, I think, also what was behind Jesus turning over the tables in anger in the temple. Why? Because the people had gathered like a marketplace. It was like a flea market. And if you couldn't afford an unblemished lamb, well, I'll sell you an overpriced dove because that's what poor people would, would sacrifice on the altar. Jesus comes walking in the temple and he'd realized that worship had become an industry that people were getting rich off of. And he just starts turning over tables going, are you kidding me? It's that kind of anger that God and Christ start to demonstrate. It's oppression. It's oppressive. It's injustice. And that's where God wants us to be able to get angry. In fact, maybe we could even ask the question, maybe people are, are, are looking for a fight because they're not already in one. Maybe it's we don't know what to do with our anger, so we end up getting so aggravated because our favorite college team lost again. 
Really? I, I got to be honest. Like, I follow a couple of teams quite closely, and I even take my own pulse when my teams aren't doing well. The last year, the San Francisco Giants were horrible, like historically bad. And I found myself really down about it. And I'm like, oh, okay, your kingdom come, your will be done. I give you this idol that is determining my emotions for this day. We are giving ourselves to too many, you know what I find also is like I don't play golf for four months and then I get really angry on a golf course because I think I've hit like a good shot once so I should do that again like consistently and I don't. But there's this low grade boil that comes out and I'm like really, really? Like where does this come from? I don't know how your anger spills out but can I just suggest to you God didn't want you to not be angry, but God wanted to give you a purpose, meaning, calling, so that you could feel unrighteousness and, and react to it and answer part of the calling on your life. And just like we talked about last week, there is such thing as compassion fatigue. We can get so overwhelmed by so many issues, and in no way should every issue be, require response but there has to be something that does light our fire. There has to be something that does actually get us angry. So what is it? Is it homelessness? Is it, is it human trafficking? Is it illiteracy? Is it, is it no access or really bad access to healthcare? What makes you angry? What is it the thing that you just go, no, that is unacceptable. Really? People, clean drinking water? Are you kidding me? We have it so good, we don't even realize who doesn't have basic human necessity. And so I would contend, and, and this is part of the Christian life that doesn't feel like a, like a lazy boy. It, it, it feels like a, a really uncomfortable wooden pew to sit in. But it's like God invites us into this, I, I want you to see what I see so that you can walk in solidarity with my creation. Give them a next step but maybe walk into their story because their story is also my story. And, and as much as you bear my image, so do they. God, slow to anger. God, not sitting there waiting for us to just mess up again. No, no, no. God gets most angry when the, when the cries of the people aren't being heard. When, when we choose in our prosperity to sort of deafen our ear or to stay comfortably removed from the needs among us so that we cannot be too affected. And again, I'm not saying give yourself to every need and opportunity. In fact, one of the things I tell people, especially when it goes to writing checks and giving, um, is when you have said yes with your life, because God's given you a vision and you've answered the calling for a kind of a thing, once you've said yes to how you're designating your giving, it also gives you permission to say no to other things without guilt. I mean, don't we all kind of go, oh, I feel like I should give, I feel like I should help. All I'm saying is there are some strategic things that Laurel and I have said, this is what we're gonna give to. We believe in the ministry of the local church. We believe in this ministry over here. We believe in what this person's doing here. And we're just gonna keep giving to those things, which also gives us permission to say, oh, our charitable giving is already spoken for because we've said yes. So what have you said yes to? But maybe more than that, what lights your fire? What makes you angry? 
Because there is something that God has pre-wired you for to respond to. Maybe it's foster care. Maybe it's what's happening in our education system. Maybe it's to stand on behalf and intercede on behalf of teachers. Whatever the case might be, God wants us to have a very tangible response. And that's why we created a church around rhythms that would be able to have a tangible response. Let me just close by saying this. Many of us have and grow up with a very negative picture of God, full of wrath, who disciplines those. Um, but, but let me ask you this question, and I don't know what your view of God is. What is worse, a God who gets angry or a God who doesn't get angry at injustice and abuse? I want to serve a God who feels unsettled when the needs are not looked after. And by the way, we're part of God's solution. We're part of God's salvation. And we get to say yes. Will you pray with me now? Our Father in heaven, I'm reminded that we have many needs and that we have many responsibilities. And, and sometimes we come in just feeling like, I can't say yes to one more thing. But I pray that we would be able to see you at the center of our life, not a piece of our life. And I pray that in our revenue generating, in our taking responsibility for our family, in our caring for our friends, that you would also help us to answer the anger question as a God-given gift, as a God-given calling. So I would just simply ask you, with the ministry of the Holy Spirit whispering to your hearts, bringing faces to mind, what lights your fire? What's the thing that makes you angry? You are created in Christ Jesus for good works. You serve a God who is slow to anger, compassionate and gracious, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is also the identity, the image we bear. Now I want to ask you, it's just a second question for you to just pray about. To what extent do you believe that God is angry with you or somehow disappointed? Where does that come from? What keeps you believing the lie that God is perpetually upset or disappointed in you? God, I pray that you would heal a theology of you. I pray that you would restore the joy of thy salvation in our hearts and in our minds. You don't allow us to forget hard conversation or difficult home lives or legalism or whatever it has that has tainted our view of a pure and loving God. But I pray that you would heal our memories. Pray that you would restore our hearts. Pray that there would be a, a kind of reconnection. Give us eyes to see the way you see us. Would you just speak to us in these minutes as we reflect on your kindness, as we sing of your love, as we declare of your great works and your faithfulness.
would you just give us a glimpse into your heavenlies? Would you just interrupt us in our to-dos? Would you break up the fallow ground of our heart? And like David prayed, would you create in us a clean heart, renew a right spirit within us, restore unto us the joy of thy salvation, invite you as we worship and pray. Sing as you will, but just invite the Holy Spirit to do a work. Invite the Spirit to just minister now and speak to you. And respond as, as you will as we sing.